Inspired in part by Sadia Hartman's Lose Your Mother, Lose Your Sister is a meditation on Black feminist thought and diaspora. Treating pop culture as a text, each week we will explore a different topic, film, show, book, event, scandal, etc. A note on creation. As we set out to build this podcast together as an exercise in friendship, cultural criticism, and diasporic exchange, we find strength in remembering that we come from a history of people who have loved and learned from one another across larger distances than this one. In the words of Saidiya Hartman, I too live in the time of slavery, by which I mean I'm living in the future created by it. Situated in this future, Lucia's sister considers how Black people find their way back to one another, interpersonally, artistically, and politically. Hey, Jordan. Hey, Liberty. How are you doing? I'm doing okay. Um, the holiday season has worn me out just a wee bit, but you Ooh. know, you know, we're we're doing our best. Habarigani. Habarigani. Um, what you call it? Yesterday was Kuji Chakalia. Today is Ujima. Yes, Ujima. Okay. Collective work and responsibility. And look at us working that- together, right? Right, right. Right. If exactly this was just that. a creativity day, Kumba? I think it's Kumba tomorrow. Yeah, if it was that day, it would also that would also hit. That would have also been the moment. Yes. Yeah. I had I had to say Habarigani myself because I wouldn't know what day it was. So I was like, let me get it in. <laughs> As a hoteptress at birth, we were quizzed on these things throughout my was built into you, but I <laughs> no. But yes, happy, happy holidays to everyone. And I hope everyone's having a pretty chill walk into the next year because this year was a lot. Like this year yeah. kind of beat my ass. <laughs> if I'm being honest. So I'm a little tired. Yes. Um, yeah. So I'm hoping that, you know, like uh there was this uh someone like used this like video from one of the real housewives, I think, where she's like, if you're not gonna be my friend, just don't be my enemy. Yes. About next year too. Yeah, just like don't be my enemy. Like we don't have to be besties, but like, you know, cordial acquaintances would be nice. Yeah, like firm handshake. Just very much that. Very much that. Um I got COVID, COVID for Christmas. Oh, <laughs> say it ain't so. <laughs> so I'm fine. I'm like asymptomatic, although I have like very light cold symptoms, but like I'm fine. But you know, the, it got me. Amarion got me. Snuck into my window. <laughs> An ice box and where your heart used to be. Yeah. Say it ain't so. <sighs> so, you know. But um, I hope everybody's safe. Um, if you do get COVID, because it's looking like she's she's getting everybody. I hope that you know you recover safely um, and quickly. <sighs> so yeah. So, what have you been watching, Miss McDonald? I you know what have I been watching? So I recently finished a couple shows actually because I watched Harlem show on Prime. Is that um, good? Um, it is entertaining. I will not make a statement about it being good. <laughs> it is entertaining. And I laughed 
at several moments and I am so excited for Megan Good and her her new era like were you meant to laugh at those moments I laughed I laughed (laughs) several times I did I think the show is funny um I think that there are some moments where I was like do I think they could have pushed their pens more yes but everyone does not wield a mighty sword okay some people do not write with pressure and that is how I felt at different times where I was like okay this could have been written better but I do think it was entertaining and I'm very excited to see Megan Good as a lead in a show I think she works really well with the ensemble cast and yeah I like the characters for what it's worth like I think that like a second season could give them a chance to flesh them out more I see. Um, yeah, I like it a lot. I also think this is like very good for like Megan Good's like divorcee era because she's like getting divorced from her like very Christian husband. So I'm like very mm. happy to see a woman out of bondage and I'm excited that she's getting a check. And so <laughs> that's cool. I watched, I binge watched Selling Tampa, which was also really enjoyable for me because I really mm. like Selling Sunset. And this is just like the like black Florida version of that in some ways. So it was way more entertaining. So I enjoyed that. I also watched Mindy Kaling's new show, The Sex Lives of College Girls, which was also entertaining to me. I laughed, (laughs) I cried. I laughed, I cried, you know, like I, both of the things happened. I enjoyed it. I generally always enjoy Mindy's shows. I just leave them coming away with it that Mindy has a real obsession with whiteness but that is just like my general takeaway from all of her content in my okay I just hate the title of it um it is a weird it is a weird title I agree um I think the show is better than the title would suggest but Mm. I I think that there is a degree to which white people take up space that I think is unnecessary and I think that just as she has an obsession with whiteness, I think that there's some real like anti-blackness that she needs to work through in terms of how the black characters function in the show, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've had this issue with her since the Mindy Project. Like I thought that she had weird relationships to blackness and whiteness, in my opinion. But her and everyone else. So. <laughs> she is not alone. She's a, a woman, a woman of the people. <laughs> that's fair, that's fair. I have been in my movie watching bag specifically because not only did I get COVID for Christmas, but so did my mom and my sister. We're all fine. <laughs> but it's just one big, like, <laughs> one 10 day long sick day. Oh. So we've just been watching like lots of movies. I did watch the new Spider Man movie. I feel a I saw it too. It. Yes. What are your thoughts? I. Before so I was, I... I've never been a huge fan of Tom Holland's Spider-Man like I always Uh kind of preferred the other ones um I I was like I enjoyed Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man I know he's not everyone's favorite one but I enjoyed him as Mm Spider-Man um I thought it was very cute when like Tobey Maguire and Andrew Garfield came back like the the other Spider-Man I thought that was a cute moment they did a lot of like interesting like therapy and I was like oh look at this like you know this is what, oh, yeah like, it, was, it was very cute yeah. to watch some it was very together. cute it was like oh like men's mental health awareness like very cute <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's like oh, oh cute yeah so I was I was happy about that that was a cute moment um 
I always feel like they put so much emphasis on Zendaya being these movies and she barely does anything in the movies. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, she has a very small role in my opinion. Um, so I, I never really feel like watching movies, I get a strong sense of like her acting, at least not in the way that you get in like Euphoria or something. Mm. So I didn't really feel like she had that significant of a role, but I thought like it was entertaining. I mean, like, I don't know. I'm still kind of on the fence about like the whole rehabilitation narrative. <laughs> that they to I'm going to wait till you're done. <laughs> I, don't know. I feel like Marvel is like always going back and forth between being like, this is state propaganda. And like, we're going to like dip our toes into like some of those like abolitionist discourses. <laughs> also gonna be like actually no they're all going to jail <laughs> they're all going to universal prison so I don't know I'm interested in like what exactly the message was or wasn't yeah I think it felt a little kind of flat on that note yeah so <clears throat> in like I didn't enjoy the movie. I appreciated because I was gonna say I enjoyed the movie. I didn't because the plot irritated me. Yeah, I was like, this doesn't make any sense. So the whole time I was like, this is silly. But I did enjoy like the premise. Um, my take on the Spider-Man movies is that the only well-written live-action ones are the Tobey Maguire ones. Yeah, the rest of them they're all well acted. I think all the Spider-Men are great in their own ways, but the actual mm-hmm like writing around it's dry so I don't I like Tom Holland as Spider-Man and Andrew Garfield yeah not interested in any of the movies the Tom Holland ones are like marginally better but I think they're like quite forgettable so yeah it was nice seeing all of them back however I was like why do we care about rehabilitating these villains we've already watched them die <laughs> one of these guys die not only that because i rewatched the um original trilogy and i'm like dr octopus and green goblin were menaces they were just killing people for (laughs) they were killing people for banter why would we care (laughs) so not only have we already killed these niggas off (laughs) so we should like it's not a moral dilemma to like see them die again in the way that they originally died yeah one two why didn't Peter just press the damn button? Why? <laughs> Storytelling wise, why would you put a plot device where it's like, yeah, so we have all these villains we've already seen die anyway. We might change them. Oh, we can send them back. We'll be pushing the button. And the button's yeah. going to be there for the whole movie. They can push it anytime. And if they push this button, all the bad things in the movie will go away. I'm like, why am I meant to be invested in the story? If they can just push a button, <laughs> everything will be fine. <laughs> this is terrible writing. I was like, what is going on the whole time? I was like, press the button, bro. Yeah. It was, like, it was very weird. It was very weird. It was as a re- it's getting weird. Yeah, especially because it's like, it's not even like Peter would have been killing them. They already died. Died. So like some of them been dead. Yeah, and, and they weren't even his bodies. They were the bodies of previous Spider Spider-Man. So it was like, like it was like those are not even on you. Like you don't even have to get a teardrop on that one. Like you're good. I was like very confused. I also thought it was very interesting how Jamie Foxx's character suddenly came off very black in this movie. Like it, like obviously he's black in the other one, but he like his 
his speech is completely different than the way the character originally speaks in the first movie you meet him in. He's super geeky. He has glasses and like a comb over and he's very awkward. And Jamie Foxx is like playing that awkwardness up. But in this version, he comes back, he has a shape up. He has no glasses. Is he wearing contacts? Did his eyes get fixed? Like what happened? And also his hair type. It was very weird because his hair type changed too. They had him in a terrible wig in the first one. So I'm like, what happened to his hair? I said, why is he 4C now? I'm confused. And then like, he's just like, oh, I would have thought Spider-Man would have been black. Like why, babe? This is the end of the Spider-Verse. Which is the second best Spider-Man movie of all time. The first yeah, being like, Spider-Man like, 2, 2004. I think the decision behind that was like, when that movie came out, no one did Jamie Foxx in it the first time. I'm yeah. sure they got clowned for how goofy Jamie Foxx. Maybe. So I think yeah. going back, they were like, no, we're, not, we're just cut that out. Um, maybe that's what it was. And it felt very weird want. to the character because the character seemed very awkward and antisocial and did not seem like he would have been like the kind of guy to be like, oh, I thought you were, I thought Spider-Man was a brother. <laughs> like, you know, he didn't seem like that guy. So I was like kind of thrown off by this like, like way different disposition that he takes on in the new one. And obviously I get that he has power now, so he's stealing himself, but it still just doesn't fit because I think before it was giving revenge of the nerds. Yeah, very much what his character was giving and in the new one it's very much given like like he's just this like cool dude who's like power hungry but he was never cool Mm. I guess the problem with the multiverse and also which is simultaneously a marketing tactic what it just reminded me that the original three films are much better than all the other ones (laughs) and so sorry the guardians cannot keep up with Willem Dafoe and Alpha Molina especially because Doctor Octopus is a bad bitch. I love Doctor Octopus so much. <laughs> My mind is an Aquarius. The way that he just struts on stage, he doesn't even have to walk because his legs carry him. I, I mean, his arms. <laughs> Willem Dafoe is a goat anyway. Yeah, I mean, Willem Dafoe was like, like, he was like meant to play a villain. It's like he was born <laughs> and they were like, this is your destiny. <laughs> yes. And so to see like Sandman, the lizard, and Electra put against them. I'm just like, why? <laughs> like, you guys seem very, very uninteresting. So, but it did make me go and watch the first three Spider-Man movies. Yeah. And a lot, I'm not going to spoil the film anymore because a lot of emotional stuff happens at the end yeah. and we're meant to care, blah, 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 tragedy. But I was like, you guys didn't earn any of that because the story writing is so weak that yeah. it just feels forced you're emotionally manipulating the audience and I was like that's very very it's also a lot of like chaos that didn't have to happen like I almost feel like they wasted the movie on like a plot that like didn't have to take place um yeah it just it just felt like a weird a weird journey that I was like I don't know if I consented to this journey (laughs) if I wanted to be on this journey but it was interesting um yeah, I, I did a double movie day. So I saw Spider-Man and then I saw Matrix right after. Um, um, and it was very, it was interesting watching those two movies back to back because I think I think there is like a similar interest in like this kind of like multiple worlds, multiverse thing. Um, so I think it was interesting seeing them back to back and like how, how like these like new versions of these like older projects are like trying to reinvent themselves. Yeah. The Matrix isn't fun to me because, like, with Mark Zuckerberg's metaverse, I'm like, oh, wait, that's actually going to happen. 
Oh, yeah. I mean, the new version is honestly not as matrixy as the early ones are because it's mostly supposed to just be like a resurrection of the original characters. So it honestly feels more like a love story than yeah, it feels I like. Yeah, like I mean, that. it feels more like a love story. It feels like more about like these characters reuniting and everything they have to do to reunite as opposed to like a real deep dive into like these alternate worlds and like red pill blue pill <laughs> chaos mm. like it's there but it kind of feels like the backdrop to a romance <laughs> okay. type of way yeah i've only watched the first one i haven't watched the other two because i've heard it that you bad. don't need to yeah i need to if i am gonna watch the fourth one i need to watch rewatch the yeah. first one yeah i mean it's very interesting there are a lot of different takes on it um the original Matrix was written by a Black woman and like like there was a whole like court case because the bro- brothers who took credit for it had to do a payout because they took her original content. Um, Ooh, that's so the, by the way. Yeah, so there are like, there are versions of the Matrix that were not her pen and then there are versions of the Matrix that were her pen and I think she was only responsible for like the first two or just the first one. Um, I forget exactly, but it's a very interesting story about like, like who owns who owns the content like was a really complicated process I never knew that I, I assumed the Wachowski sisters wrote it because I only hear about their input interesting all right I can't think of a great segue but um <laughs> <laughs> the next bit but we would like to this season of LYS because you know we're in our second season and that um yes. we really want to hear more from our listeners so we'd like to hear your feedback. So tell us what you thought about this episode and we'll respond in the next episode. You can email us at usualsister at gmail.com or you can DM us on Twitter or Instagram, both of which are at lusyoursister. Or you can comment on Insta as well. One of my friends responded to the previous episode that we did on passing. And I, I thought her comments were really interesting because we were talking about it and I liked to hear Jordan's thoughts. So my friend Sarah, shout to her, said, um, I think there's an argument that can be had about anxieties that are doubled if we're in a quiz subtext about what motherhood reckons with women's sexuality and gender and race in seeing that America is the birthplace of participative ventrum, which is the law that slave women didn't have any right to their children. And essentially it also made like kind of legally sound that like if you were born of a slave you were a slave yes that slavery yeah. began in the womb essentially yeah, yeah. and then so also said it also reminded me of the fact that presenting white person people as black was a narrative that white abolitionists used to be like slavery is bad because it happens to these people who could, who would pass as white um what is the history and power dynamic of giving platform to passing narratives yeah i mean i think those are both really interesting points i mean i think to the second part, like in terms of like what function do passing narratives have? I mean, I think I think it really depends on like what our politics are and like how mm. we approach those stories, right? And like what our investments are. I mean, I think there is obviously like um, your friend pointed out like this long history of like white abolitionists propping up these kind of like white passing slaves to see like, look, like this could happen to you. Mm. Um, but I think what is also important about those stories is that the way those people are being commodified by those abolitionists demonstrates the way that anti-blackness is persisting in those relationships so it's like even as much as that person may look like a white person they are not being engaged with like a white person which Mm. would suggest that there is still something 
insidious going on that is about more than just what they look like because I think in some ways right like this is also a question about like as much as it is about blackness in those early moments it's also a question about slaveness which like is a thing that like persists even to the point where people may look like white people but are still understood to be slaves and are still treated as slaves so I think to me it gets complicated I mean I am all for acknowledging right like the differences between like how a black person who looks white <laughs> is experiencing things versus a black person who does not look like that yeah. um but I do think there's something kind of really eerie about like those examples of like quote-unquote white negroes in the like original sense like before we get to like the idea of like white people blackfishing they're like very early race science discourses about about white Negroes in the sense of like albino black people or very pale black people who white people were like studying to understand what made someone black if not their skin color mm. right so I think I think there is a really weird history where like very pale black people are also factoring into this discourse and where white people's need to create boundaries for whiteness are still being enforced I also think that their use of those white people or like white passing people demonstrates that they were not fully invested in in that project either because it's like why do you need why do you need the slave to look like you <laughs> for you to understand the stakes I mean that feels yeah. very much like in line with like Sadia Hartman like sees the subjection in terms of her argument that like a lot of white empathy discourses are like deeply anti-black and require the replacement of the black subject with the white subject for empathy to even take place mm. um so I think, I think to me, it just feels like an, an extension of that kind of deep sickness is a word we could use. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah I mean, I think, I think it's very disturbing, but I also think in most of those cases, using those images is not necessarily the same thing as those children becoming free because white people are using their images either. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I think if your story becomes like trauma porn for white people, that may not be the same thing as becoming free mm, that reminds me of the film a time to kill with samuel jackson and matthew mcconaughey and the premise is that samuel jackson's daughter little black girl is mm-hmm. um raped i think she might be killed as well mm-hmm. um and so samuel jackson's character goes and kills her assaulter mm-hmm. and the rest of the movie is how um matthew mcconaughey who's a lawyer He's representing Simon Jackson and whether he can get him off the case. And they win the case only because the lawyer says, imagine if this girl was white to the jury. Mm-hmm. And that's it. And I remember, because <laughs> I, I watched it in school, it was being held up as this like, yeah, civil rights movement. I was like, but <laughs> this little black girl was not, <laughs> did not receive her justice. Yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's like a, such a good example of like what it means to like, double down on anti-blackness in a certain type of way because it is reifying the idea that like certain types of people are inviolable and like don't have a capacity to be harmed or to even like to consent or not consent so I don't know I think I think for me there's a long history of what comes off as like well-meaning white attempts at solidarity that are actually just like really just like invested in reifying anti-blackness and like boosting whiteness's capital in general yeah yeah because I don't think that actually does anything if we have to imagine the black victim as a white victim to empathize with her then we've done nothing to stop that yeah. violence from happening again yeah. yeah 
And before we move on, because I'm aware of time, I do think linking Parson to Parter's secretive venture is really interesting mm-hmm. considering how emotionally removed Claire is from mm-hmm. her daughter. So yes, and there being a legacy of that within slave women and their children, not being able to have emotional bonds because they're going to be separated. So yeah, I think um, Claire's relationship with her daughter is an interesting like inversion of that because it's blackness that's separating the two of them or yeah. saveness as you would say as miss afro pessimist but, <laughs> <laughs> but for completely different in a completely different context than yeah than slavery. by the way on the topic of passing i want to shout out to my partner for watching passing with me and not just passing but also judas and the black messiah because she <laughs> recently listen back to all of the episodes because she she had she had been busy she'd been backlogged um and then she came back and she was like you shouted out your friend <laughs> you shouted out your friend who watched Malcolm Marie B didn't mention my name even though I didn't want to watch the film in the first place and I was like I'm sorry so all right we have a dedication for this episode because unfortunately we lost um a true mother in cultural criticism Miss Bell Hooks and yes. passed away on December 15th, 2021. Um, so we would like to dedicate this episode to her. Yes, Hooks taught generations of Black women and Black people about love, feminism, art, and the gendered power relations of racial capitalism through her theory, poetry, and other writings. She has healed and saved many of us. And as a platform of Black feminist cultural criticism, Loser Sister is indebted to Hooks's legacy. May she rest in power and peace. So yeah, it was a very surprising death and we've had a very rough yeah. two years in terms of like losing legends. Yeah. I think starting with Toni Morrison and then it's been loads of... Yeah, just a procession of yeah. really um, special people, especially a lot of, of writers and thinkers who I think contributed a lot to how we have our conversations today. Yes. So um, I hope that you know, as our listeners are taking care of themselves as we mourn our greats and have these big footsteps to follow and big shoes to fill. Right, so our topic of today is King Richard. Biopic about um, King Richard, the father, not King Richard, I keep on saying King Richard, actually referring to (laughs) (laughs) Richard and King Richard. the um it's about Richard Williams the father Mm -hmm. of the tennis legends Serena and Venus Williams who I hold very very dearly in my heart do you want to do the leading question now yeah so the leading question we have for this episode is what was your earliest memory of Venus Serena and their father Richard Williams or just Venus and Serena themselves Mm. Yeah, what's your kind of go-to, like, moment where you remember first processing their existence? So I probably would have been really, really young, and it would have been around Wimbledon, Mm -hmm. because not only, like, being from the UK, Wimbledon is a big thing, but I also live in South London and quite close to Wimbledon. Mm -hmm. So it's really lovely when the tournament happens, because it's like, like, everybody's watching. I remember people, like, coming to my house to watch the matches, people like to have like eat a mess or like strawberries and cream 
while mm. I'm watching it. It's a whole thing. It's, it's cute. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I just remember my dad telling me about Venus and Serena and like how important they were. And it was very special because me and my sister, like there was two sisters and with like two sisters and I was Venus because I was the older one, Renny Serena because she was the younger one. And even when we used to play like badminton in the back garden and we pretend to be because <laughs> we were like grunt. Um, so we'd be like, uh, uh, as we were like hitting. <laughs> it's a little like feather badminton thing, like two feet, but <laughs> doing the most. So yes, I just remember being told about like how they dominated the sport. And this would have been in the early 2000s. I was watching them. So yeah. And then... I was following them. I, I used to watch, I used to favor their matches the most. Um, mm-hmm. I would always watch the finals. And so, of course, I would see them a lot. And so, I'm <laughs> 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 <By> logistics. <laughs> I wanted to watch them anyway. I would watch their, I watched their matches regardless. Mm-hmm. And, but I would always watch the fi- finals, um, the men's and the women's singles. And they were always there. So, yeah. And I just remember just feeling like, a great pride and yeah. my dad also in the lore of Venus and Serena I was also told about Richard Williams and how he had like planned from birth their like ascent and also the lore that like you had this like black girl playing Venus and she's like dominating and then all of a sudden found out that she had a sister as well and it was like not two of them <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I love that yeah, I think my first like significant memory of Venus and Serena, I think I, I knew about them as a kid. Like I used to see them on TV and stuff, but I think mm-hmm. my most like memorable, I guess, experience or encounter with them was when I actually saw them play. Um, when I was a kid, we went to a like White Castle match, um, which is like the DC team. And I forget if it was Venus or Serena who was playing for White Castles, but I remember like I like wore my little tennis outfit to the game (laughs) because I was like I was like oh like I want to like support and like be the in like the right attire because I think as a child I thought that I was supposed to be in tennis gear to watch a tennis match. (laughs) That's so cute you said I have to be cute I have to be cute to support. (laughs) Yeah so I like I wore my little skirt um and I was very into it um I don't think I understood the game at all because I had never really seen tennis played before. Mm -hmm. But I knew that they were a big deal and I knew that they were black and I knew that like my mom was very excited for us to see them. And I think there was one summer where like I really tried to learn how to play tennis (laughs) because because I knew that they existed and I was like, oh, like maybe, maybe I could be good at it too. It was not my ministry as you all can tell. Um, (laughs) No, tennis is hard. I did try once upon a time to, um, to learn how to play tennis. But yeah, I mean, as as the movie demonstrates, the resources for learning how to play tennis are not the most accessible. Yeah. So it is, for a lot of reasons, a very exclusive elite sport. But I think I think it was a big deal for a lot of people, like to see Venus and Serena playing. Mm. Another thing I want to add is that, like, growing up, it didn't really sink in that like tennis was a white elite sport. Mm-hmm. Um, tennis or golf or gymnastics because mm-hmm. I just grew up with black people dominating the sport yeah. <laughs> and so my parents had to like let me know yeah the, the gravity situation and even then it didn't really like dawn on me mm-hmm. until I started like reading about it more when I was older so I'm very grateful mm-hmm. for that 
Hmm, so we can let's, let's let's get into the tea about King Richard and its subjects. Yes. So King Richard is a 2021 biopic directed by Ronaldo Marcus Green and written by Zach Balin. The film dramatizes the early training and career of tennis icons Venus and Serena Williams through the eyes of their tenacious father, Richard Williams. The groundbreaking legacy of the Williams sisters began as a 78-page plan that Richard wrote before the women were even born. Though the love and support of wife and mother, Orisine Brandy Price, and Venus and Serena's three older sisters, who watched Richard, Venus, and Serena rise through the ranks of the Junior Tennis League, despite being the only Black faces in the sport. Will Smith returns to the screen as the patriarch Richard Williams. Sunia Sidney plays Venus Williams and does an amazing job, might I add. Demi Singleton plays Serena Williams and Ojone Ellis stars as Orisine Price and we are um, Ellis stands in Anjanu yes. High, we rise. Uh, hey, hey Anjanu, you're very pretty. <laughs> um, <laughs> Venus and Serena and their two living older sisters, Mindrea Price and Isha Price, were all producers of the film and were present on set during filming. The elder sister of the bunch, Shitande Price, was tragically killed in 2003. A younger self appears in the film. Now, we've said this before, but the subjects of today's episode truly need no introduction. Venus Williams was the first Black woman tennis player to rank number one in the world in the open era and has won seven Grand Slam titles. For the uninitiated, a Grand Slam means that a player has won the French Open, Australian Open, U.S. Open, and Wimbledon in the same calendar year. And the Open era began in 1968 when professional and amateur tennis players were allowed to play against each other. The only other woman who has won more Grand Slam titles than Venus Williams is her sister, Serena. Serena Williams has won 23 Grand Slam titles more than any other player in the Open era, regardless of gender. Venus and Serena have won 14 Grand Slam women's doubles titles, and they remain unbeaten and undefeated in Grand Slam doubles finals. Between the two of them, the Williams sisters have practically dominated tennis for two decades. Richard Williams, their father, is known for training Venus and Serena to become tennis prodigies and shepherding their careers. His infamous 78-page plan proved to be largely accurate, predicting that Venus would be ranked the number one tennis player in the world and that Serena would later become the greatest tennis player of all time. However, despite his reputation as a protective, if not overbearing father, Richard has not been present in all of his children's lives. In January 2020, The Sun published an interview with Sabrina Williams, Richard's very first child who was born in his um, previous marriage prior to Oracine, 16 years before Venus was born. Sabrina revealed that Richard abandoned her, her mother, and her four other siblings when she was about eight. And now at the age of 57, she has barely had contact with Richard and has received no financial support despite Richard's current wealth. King Richard alludes to Richard's abandoned children, but does not um, engage with it heavily. Yeah. As it pretty much centers Venus and Serena and then Oracine's three children from a previous marriage. So what's your first reaction to the film? So I was I was excited to see the film in general just because um, I thought the cast was exciting. Mm-hmm. And I was particularly excited because I am a huge fan of Anjanou Ellis, like mm-hmm. very big stan. I've really enjoyed like pretty much everything I've seen her in. And I was excited to see her play Orensine because I feel like Venus and Serena's mother is a figure who is like not generally 
in the public eye. Um, she's yes. like not really someone that we think of heavily. I mean, even the film centering of like King Richard would suggest that there's far more, um, I think public investment in talking about Richard than there is about Ornstein generally. But I was really interested in seeing an actress like Ingenue who I know has the chops to like yes. really give a character some like real weight. I think I was excited to see her bring that character to life because I really was very unfamiliar with like who their mother was as a person and what her role had been in supporting them. And so I was excited to see that. Um, once I actually saw the movie, I was also really struck by the inclusion of her daughters because I think they also have like not factored heavily into the public narrative of Venus and Serena. Mm. I think we generally think of them as just two sisters and not as like two of five girls who were raised together. So that was really interesting. And obviously, of course, when you factor in Richard's other kids, Venus and Serena are two of a much larger <laughs> family. Um, yeah. So like it's, I think seeing them in context really changes, I think, the way you view them. I think we think of them as kind of these like, almost like obviously they're not twins, but I think you think of them almost having that kind of twin-like relationship, like this mm -hmm. kind of symbiotic, like two-ness. Um, and I think the movie reminded me of like how much they fit into a larger family narrative that is like fairly complicated, I think, even as a fan. Yes. Yeah, I love that they included the sisters because I think a lesser movie would have like even written them out or lumped them into one. Mm -hmm. And it was so sweet just seeing that family dynamic at home and yeah. understanding how that shaped the two of them, the two of them being Venus and Serena. I really enjoyed the movie. I had my hesitancy. I don't, I don't think I came into it with high expectations because um, mm. Will Smith was being a bit goofy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's kind of weird casting. It's kind of weird casting. I don't think he does a bad job, but the casting was kind of odd because he doesn't really look like Richard to me. Yeah, it felt like 2006 to me because I was like, this mm. film would have been like <laughs> a blockbuster, especially because yeah. it featured um, Venus more than Serena. Yeah. And it's an interesting scene in the movie where they have to reckon with Serena's legacy because I'm sure like younger viewers probably mm -hmm. are more aware familiar. with familiar, yeah, with Serena because she's still dominating now, whereas Venus has doesn't play as often because I think due to mm -hmm. health reasons. But because Venus is older and the film focuses on the very early part of like their careers, yeah, it features Venus more prominently than Serena. I thought it was a very well-written, well-shot movie. I mm -hmm. like that they didn't try to follow like their entire careers up until this point. Yeah. There wasn't too much to fit. The performances were really moving um, by the actors. I also felt that the film looked beautiful, particularly yeah. the end shots where um, they get into really high stakes tennis tournaments. Mm -hmm. And it was like really gorgeous wide shots of Venus playing because you don't really get to see tennis from that perspective because it's usually from like a bird's eye view. Yeah. Um, so I, I would recommend, I'm not telling you guys to go to the cinema in the Amerian <laughs> Berlin, but <laughs> I think it's a shame that this movie has been released during this current play because yeah um, it should be watched on a big screen I think it's actually coming back to theaters in January I mm. think there was a weird deal made I think between HBO and the like original like production company and so I guess because like apparently Will Smith actually like paid his co-stars like the money they lost in the movie leaving theaters mm. um 
so like there was like a whole kind of controversy about it which I think has happened with several other films other than King Richard yes. I think something similar happened with Black Widow back and forth with, with Scarlett Johansson who is an interesting figure <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but I think like yeah, I think I think in theaters feels like a very different experience in some ways. And I'll also drop in the like reading list for this episode a piece where they talk to the like cinematographer about the editing decisions he made for the tennis scenes in particular, because it's very interesting. Yeah. So yeah, I think it's, it's a really solid movie. And I think it's a shame that it's not doing well in the box office because of Corona. I think people are only going to see Spider-Man, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah also think we barely I don't know if you can classify this as a blockbuster but I think if it was released in any other time it yeah. would be one but we barely see blockbusters about young black girls particularly young dark-skinned girls mm-hmm. um the casting in this movie is really good like everyone looks like yeah. how they are <laughs> yeah how they are in real life maybe Barbara Smith but you know he's the big name to draw everybody in mm-hmm. and I did get emotional during the end about seeing Venus and Serena you know, like these dark-skinned Black girls being, you know, titans. So, you know, we, we don't stand representation politics here, but... <laughs> as a treat, as a treat. As a treat, you know, it's like a, you know, a Christmas treat. <laughs> so, yeah, I feel like we don't get to say often that we like movies. Hello, <laughs> <laughs> this is this is a this is y'all treat for the end of the year. Yeah, um, right. because we're coming back in 2022, and I'm telling, I already have a feeling I'm not about to like a lot of things. <laughs> so I'm already feeling it. I'm already feeling it. That's so funny because I feel like I'm the harsher one because you always are very diplomatic <laughs> when you don't like something, but I don't like being like it was bad, guys. <laughs> really don't like it no because I'm always like I'm always on the like Aretha Franklin like beautiful gowns no I hate Aretha (laughs) I love Aretha Franklin best thing of all time hateful woman (laughs) um she's so funny my area's hilarious but no honestly beautiful gowns was like the most succinct piece of criticism we've had in years so she she did a lot of work with that one she ate another mother of cultural criticism if you ask me she really put her foot in that one because yes. a lot of these things, it really just is beautiful gowns. Um, yeah. But I will say with King Richard, it was more than beautiful gowns. No, it's true. Yes. It yes. was actually good performances. I was moved. I hope to see those actresses who played Venus and Serena in more stuff. I think that's Demi and Sanaya, I think. Yeah, Sanaya's Sinai, in a lot of things. So Yeah, um, but I hope to see Demi and some more things as well um I really enjoyed them and I watched this interview they did with Kelly Clarkson together and they're very cute and they're like very close with each other so I was like that's nice (laughs) yeah I was like that's cute I hope I hope they stay close because I'm sure the industry is a lot for young girls um Mm. so I hope that they they stay close but I feel like we should probably get into like the meat of the film a little bit in terms of I mean the titular character right like Richard um it's a very complicated figure and there obviously was a lot of apprehension about representing him in a film and I think obviously this film was done in collaboration with the family so we obviously have to take that into account but I think Mm. it seems like there were real efforts to acknowledge his his flaws and I'm kind of interested in thinking about like I guess his his role as the father and like the model of parenthood that he offers up yes I felt very conflicted about not only Richard, but what the movie was trying to push 
as you know a portrait of Richard because the film does a very good job even though it's called King Richard and it's given like this big epithet I feel like they they did really do a good job of like writing in the flaws of the character because he's presented as like this strong determined father but he's also like physically beaten um, by thugs he blames coaches for exploiting his daughters but then he's also like clearly obsessed with fame and people point that out he's very stubborn and even gets in the way of his children's um training at the same time he's often proven right and in the grand scheme of things he's proven right because mm-hmm. Venus and Serena become what they are now yeah and so I felt myself like toing and throwing because a lot of the times I I understood where he's coming from but I was like I was like, ooh. Yeah. Yeah, it was it was a bit stressful. And I think two very pivotal scenes is the one where um Orisine checks him. Mm-hmm. So there's a bit where Orisine, because Richard is like, I made all of this, because they're in like a house in yeah. um Florida while um Venus is getting trained, and he's like, I was here to build all this, no one respects me. And Orison was like, You think it was you? I've been there. <laughs> I've been training Serena. I fix her serve because you messed that up. Yeah. You don't finish nothing. You left your kids. And there's another scene where Richard talks to Venus and it's like, my father ran away while I was being beaten by a white mob. And I didn't want mm-hmm. you and your sisters to ever see your father running away. And that's why mm-hmm. I'm the way I am. And it's like very heartfelt away also perform set mm. however Richard did run away from his other family and so yeah. it's just like it's I, I I know the production team was stressed when that Sun article came out because yeah <laughs> that was <laughs> that part of Richard's life was kept very well under rights for probably about two decades yeah. and so it's hard to bite into this quite frankly like I don't know if we can call it a fallacy that Richard Williams is such a supportive father because yeah. he only supported like a percentage of his of kids. His kids. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, I think it's a very complicated story. I mean, I think even in terms of like where like Ornstein fought like or Brandy like fits into the story, right? There mm-hmm. is this kind of like fact of the matter that like she was financially supporting the family throughout this yep. story, right? So like yep. there's also an extent to which like his emergence as this kind of like like perfect kind of supportive father like kind of doesn't seem to sit alongside this awareness of the fact that the the kind of material needs of the family were kind of all following or falling on the mother in this situation and I am really glad that Anjanu gets that scene right like Mm -hmm. where she calls him out about about his his lack of follow-through but I think there is something really interesting there and thinking about the long arc of his relationship to her. I mean, obviously he does take in her children as his own and then they have children together, but he obviously like, there've long been rumors and like acknowledged allegations of his infidelity mm. when he was with her. And yes. after their divorce, he has had numerous other children. So I'm not entirely sure like what the long arc of like how you would think about him as a figure what that's going to look like because I I worry that in prioritizing Venus and Serena over all these other children that there's a value judgment being made about you know which kids matter Mm. um and so I think I think there's something sad to me about that 
especially when you think about the fact that like there's so much intention that went into his planning for them and while I I mean I don't necessarily want to like make it seem like Venus and Sabrina didn't have their own struggles because I do think there's a lot of pressure being put on children when you have a parent making a plan for your life before you were born I think there's a lot of pressure being put on them to not only change their families change their family's future but also to change the world I mean there's like literally a scene where he talks about like where he tells like one of his daughters, like all the little black girls in the world, yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like who it's like who you need to be thinking about when you make these moves, or like who like who you could like impact when yeah. when you win, right? And that's a lot to put on a child to say that like the weight of the world is on you. Mm. And I, I don't know, I struggle with that. And even in terms of like his relationship to his dad and like this narrative of like a black father who couldn't protect his children, and then he becomes this like very intense hands-on figure with some with two of his kids right and his whole thing of like I'm not gonna leave I'm gonna be here I'm gonna be on you in this kind of way I wonder if he creates this false sense of like what the capacity of black parents even is in terms of those things because I think I think his judgment of his father obviously is like his father running away is like is that his father left him right that his father mm-hmm. abandoned him in that moment of need but I also think there's something to be said for like for like the fact that that situation demonstrates like how little power his father actually had. Yeah. Um, and in some ways, I wonder if like a lot of, a lot of Richard's like antics kind of become this desire to accrue power, right? Mm-hmm. And like his whole thing of like, nobody respected me, but they're going to respect you, right? But then it's also interesting, I mean, because it's like Serena and Venus have obviously been super successful, but they've also been very disrespected like over the course of their career. Um, yeah. And we can't say like, we can't really say that their father was really able to protect them from from anti-blackness you know what I mean like Mm. he was able to help them get access to wealth and to like notoriety but I think there's an extent to which like this idea of like his capacity to shield them from the world is like perhaps overstated Mm. and I think there's there's literally no black figure that you can think of that has been able to escape anti-blackness by way of capitalist success even like Oprah remember that story when she got followed in a store Yes. Um, <laughs> like, it's not Obama, funny. It's not funny, but it's funny. Yeah, like, there's literally you can be friends in the United States. <laughs> there's nothing you can do. You can marry the prince of England. Like, you can, there's nothing you can do to escape anti-blackness. So, yeah, that's a very interesting point you have there. Because they have been extremely disrespected. Yeah. <sighs> I mean, yeah. we'll talk about the politics too. I guess like his politics. Oh you know, yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't. I'm not going to use this as a value adjustment. Um, yeah. Because I don't think it's not um, a politic that the film leans into. But I do think there is a clear like conservative slant in the film of mm-hmm. being, you know, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. One and a distinction between like good hardworking black people who are in like a nuclear family versus like the thugs in Compton because there's lots of scenes where Richard William has to literally like defend his daughters against these young black men who are well the word I'm looking for is harassment they're harassing yeah yeah his other daughters particularly the eldest Yutunde um mm-hmm. because she's about like 16 17 yeah at the time also um Richard Williams 
isn't from Compton. Um, when he met Oracine, they were living elsewhere in like the suburbs and mm-hmm. Williams believed that the best athletes were formed in adversity and like gritty neighborhoods. And so he moved the family to Compton. Yeah, in order to raise Venus and Serena in a working class neighborhood, which makes <laughs> <laughs> when I found that out, I was like, oh, because I always, I always took a lot of pride. As someone who comes from like a rough neighborhood, I always took a lot of pride yeah. the fact that Venus and Serena were like raising Compton, and so to yeah. find out that they were transformed, I was like. <laughs> No, because their dad was really doing a social experiment no, into poverty. And I'm like, yeah. what exactly? And like, I feel like to me, like there's something like, obviously we can talk about the class politics of that, but I think it is class layered with like race because it is extremely like, like what actually is being said when you say that the best athletes come from like poverty stricken black environments like what is actually the narrative being produced and how does that like then authorize the persistence of those environments being under resourced of like people not getting what they need if we say diamonds come come from this yes because also it's, it was written into his plan that like he's going to train them up until a certain point but he knew that he had to have money and resources in, in order for them to go farther and that we'd have mm-hmm. to go to white coaches the start of the film I would say the first even the first 15 minutes of the film is him going to white coaches sending them videos trying to convince them to take on Venus and Serena for free uh so yeah the concert it the consensual process (laughs) of the film (laughs) I especially tied with the whole like you're representing black girls everywhere putting the pressure on venus and serena to pull their family out of positivity because also towards the end of the film let's say venus doesn't get a certain deal and it's like millions and she's sobbing because she's like i know my family needed this money yeah it's not even just for her and her glory of winning she was i i felt like it was written in a way that it felt like venus wasn't just doing it for herself she was doing it yeah for the betterment of her family and yes, yeah, a lot of pressure to put on black children. But again, it's also me and Jordan were having like talks about tension of the of that black parents are also priming children for reality. Yeah, I mean, and I really struggle with it. I mean, there's one interview, another one that I'll put in the reading list, where like one of I think Oracine's daughters, who was raised by Richard, talks about how Richard wouldn't let them watch the Cosby Show in the house because he basically said that Bill Cosby's already rich and y'all are not rich. Like y'all are broke. Y'all shouldn't be watching rich people on TV. And so he was like, y'all need to go make money and not be sitting down watching Bill Cosby be rich with his family. And it was so funny because I really, all I heard was like, broke people should never. (laughs) 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 And I was just like, like Onika Tanya, like the spirit of Onika really came through Richard. Like, I think they really share, they share something like at a spiritual oh, level. There's the spirit of Richard in Onika. I'm like chicken. Very the, much that. Yeah, chicken of the egg, like. Yeah, so I don't know. That was really interesting to me, but it also made me think a lot about this quote that Zaki Iman Jackson has, where she says that Black excellence is the answer to a racist question, because I think there's something really anti-Black built into like, what informs Black parents' desires 
to like make their children into these kinds of exceptional prodigy type figures. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think there's something really intense about the weight of not only the family's livelihood, but like the weight of the world and the way that Richard phrases it, right? Like being on these, these kids. And I think like, you know, you and I've had this conversation before in terms of like, okay, like, what does it mean to like, to prepare them for the world, right? And like, obviously to prepare them for an anti-Black world, a misogynistic yeah. world, et cetera, right? And I don't know, I don't know what that looks like exactly, like in terms of whether or not this is like preparation or whether or not this is just like more trauma potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, I kind of, I kind of struggle because I think we've seen this kind of like template play out a lot. And I think we generally justify it when those people are successful, Mm. right? Like we justify it when they become Venus and Serena's or when they become a Tiger Woods or uh, like, you know, a a Michael Jackson, a Janet Jackson, right? Like we justify those things because they become what we consider to be like successful black people who like people look up to. Mm. Um, But I I wonder like at what cost? Yeah. Um, Yeah. Because out of the people you just mentioned, it's only the Williams sisters who we can safely say are, well, who at least seem mentally sound because the rest of them were messed up by their childhoods. But the sad thing is that, like, these Black children were, like, pushed extremely hard. But the rest of us benefit. Like, mainly benefited from seeing venus and serena dominate from seeing tiger Woods. from even if we're going to put it in a more political context um even though sports itself is politicized um like ruby bridges yeah um the amount of pressure that was put on her yeah or like um, the little rock nine right like all yeah. those kinds of like integration stories that center black children as like the vanguards for these kinds of yeah. movements yeah i mean i think i don't know i think it is really eerie to me because sometimes i think about like I used to watch, I've seen the like Ruby Bridges movie like more times than I can count. <laughs> like I've seen it so many times. And something I used to think about a lot, like as, I, as I've gotten older, like it's just like what it does to a child to tell them that, that their pain doesn't matter. Because mm-hmm. I feel like, like you're not gonna tell me that there weren't days that Ruby went back home to her parents and was like, I don't wanna do this, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't tell me there weren't days where she was so scared or so angry or so hurt that she didn't want to go back into like that shit show essentially of what of like that hellscape that she was being forced to like integrate as this like child soldier for the like civil rights movement right and I think there's like something that I think happens over time that like really I think is really detrimental because like you're basically telling this kid that like that they're pain is worth it yeah for like the greater good and I think as a child all you really want is for someone to like affirm that your pain is significant and for at least someone to even try to protect you even if they can't successfully do so to at least try right but it's almost like willingly putting these people into the line of fire I mean especially when we think about like a Serena Williams or a Tiger Woods where they're entering like these sports that are known for being extremely white, Mm. right? Like these are sports that are known for being extremely white where like they did in fact face a lot of like anti-Black epithets being being, like wielded at them. They did in fact experience other players being racist towards them, right? Like they did experience a lot of 
really intense pushback, right? And I think that psychologically, like, what does it do to like keep sending your kid into that and to tell them that their sacrifice is like for something? Yeah. Um, and I, I just don't know, like, if I think even if we think of it as like for the greater good of the society, I do think it feels like a betrayal of that child. Yes. These are questions I don't really have the answer to. Um, I yeah. think it also links to when Black parents teach their children to be aware of the white gaze, which can also feel like a betrayal of the um, child because they can't just be themselves or they can't just be children even. Just give a, um, a personal analogy. I remember one time I was doing work experience at a newsroom office and I came back and I think my buttons were like done in the incorrect order or something. Mm-hmm. And my dad was like, you were the only black person there. And you came, <laughs> you came out looking like that. <laughs> and I was, I was probably about 14, 15 at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, even then, and I had like no experience. I wasn't, I was there to like gain experience and learn. Mm-hmm. Um, I was very much like a child in that space. Yeah. I was still put, <laughs> the pressure of like representing black people was still placed on my shoulders. Yeah. But even though it feels hard, it does prepare you to live in like, a white supremacist world that doesn't give you much chances mm-hmm. so like you know as a black parent like what do you do do you shield your children and you know shield them from white gaze and then not prepare prepare them for it or mm-hmm. do you you know um teach them to be aware and hopefully not fearful I don't think it's either or I don't think it's even like be super super harsh <laughs> yeah or be like negligent but I think navigating in a way that doesn't damage your children is definitely like a tightrope. Yeah. I mean, it's very complicated. And I mean, I think, I think a lot of our templates for parenting, particularly right, like in the West are coming from a very colonial patriarchal kind of like, like we have a very, like the template is not, is like already coming from like very anti-Black patriarchal context. So, I mean, it's very hard because I think in some ways, like, if we were to like to attempt to like create new modes for parenting, we would be going against a lot of what we are taught parents should be doing. And I think, I don't know, for me, I go back and forth because I think that like, there's obviously a lot of criticism, right? Like for example, like there were a lot of white feminists who had issue with like Richard Williams being centered, many Mm. of whom I think didn't fully even understand Serena and Venus's story. So they were kind of like, in general, as white women often do, talking outside of the neck. But I think think there is this kind of larger conversation to be had about like the fact that Black parents are parenting under the white gaze themselves, right? So Mm. there is this awareness that like, there is this constant kind of commentary on like whether or not Black people are doing anything correctly, right? Are doing gender correctly, are doing family correctly, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. And I struggle with it because I think even of like someone like LeVar Ball, who's like the father of like three different NBA players. And there's like this USA Today article where this like white woman calls him like the worst sports parent ever because like he's like very intense. And like he has like, he took one of his sons out of high school to like train him. And he is like, very outrageous and like very misogynistic in a lot of ways um, in terms of the kinds of things that he's like very public about teaching his sons about what it means to like go into the NBA as young black men. They are mixed, but they are all black. They have a white mom. And 
I don't know, I think there's something, I, I struggle with it because I think there are some things that he says about like how he raised his sons that really troubles me in the sense mm-hmm. of like coaching them. Like he talks about like coaching them to like beware of like hoes because of like the, but like because they are going into like this elite sports industry. He also talks about how he would often tell his boys that they would never, that they would never mature as fast as he did or that they wouldn't like come into their like true man bodies because they had a white mom. <laughs> like he was like very much he was like very much participating in like abusive like like race science with his where he would like where he would like assert his dominance like as their father through this like narrative that they would develop slower than he did because they are black but because they have a white mom like they are not as like (laughs) that they like would become men slower (laughs) than he would become a man um which is like like a whole lot of like racial biological essentialism that like makes me want to slide down the wall (laughs) but like I struggle of course with like white woman feeling like she has the authority to like determine what makes them a good or a bad parent because Mm. of the long history of, of white people's influence over those things but I can't say that I myself don't feel like deep discomfort with the way that he talks about his relationship to his sons and the way that many people think that his behavior is like authorized by the fact he's gotten all three of them into the league when people thought he couldn't yes right right so like there is this like real I think way that like so much I think violence and intense I think abusive engagement with children is like authorized or justified through their success and I think even in stories where I think there are aspects of like these parents love for their kids that we can, that we can see, right? Like I, I would never say that like Richard Williams doesn't love his kids, right? Like Mm. I would never say that, but I also think there's something really disturbing. I think about how like anti-Blackness and capitalism really like perverts what love looks like in these relationships. Yeah. Yeah. The portrayal of Richard Williams as, even though he's portrayed as a very complex character with flaws I thought that a lot of people would come away from King Richard like um, they did from Fences and what I'm referring to is that every now and again there's a um, clip of the film Fences with Denzel Washington where he is berating his son and saying that I don't need to love you because I put clothes on your back it's basically mm-hmm. the gist of like but it's that for two minutes and usually um dinner with Jay-Z Twitter um who- <laughs> <laughs> dinner with Jay-Z Twitter I'm, I'm imagining I'm imagining the room you know mattress on the floor um red and white decor <laughs> if they have a bookshelf I feel like these books will be on the bedside table but if they have the bookshelf the only books on the shelf are rich dad poor dad 40 laws of power and <laughs> how to <laughs> win friends and influence enemies. I think is that the title. <laughs> um, <always> like... <laughs> Whenever that clip surfaces, they're always like, this is parenting. This is fatherhood. This is how you raise a man. And I feel like that type of audience member would mm-hmm. watch King Richard and feel like Richard William is justified in everything that he did or the mistakes that he made even mm-hmm. though he in the film he recognizes them and he tries to um correct them and make amends I think they will feel like very vindicated and feel like he was justified in all the wrongdoings mm-hmm. because Venus and Serena at the end of the day become successful wildly successful 
and another thing I was going to say was that um, it's funny that Black parents are seen as intense because they're responding to racial capitalism mm-hmm. and the pressure to be Black excellent, seen as excellent just to survive. Yeah. But the white parents in the form are really disgraceful. Yeah. <laughs> they're seen as um, yeah. very, they too are extremely intense, have very high standards for their daughters because we only see mm-hmm. um, the junior women's tennis yeah and when there's like a montage of venus like beating all these little white girls and they say to themselves like oh you are stupid you were useless mm-hmm. and it cleared that my mom i watched it with my mom and at first i thought it was like weird that they were saying you and then my mom pointed mm-hmm. out like no someone must have said that to them like they're repeating mm-hmm. verbatim what their coaches and their parents have said to yeah. them and the girls also the white girls also demonstrate very bad sportsmanship um, yeah like they refuse to accept um their trophies because it's not mm-hmm. um the gold trophy mm-hmm. whereas as intense as Richard Williams is and Orsine mm-hmm. Price is they well no Orsine isn't intense she's very very loving the whole way but yeah. they're very encouraging to their daughters in that they say mm-hmm. like you're, you're just here to have fun go out there have fun mm-hmm. even when Venus doesn't win they're like you went toe-to-toe with the number one tennis player at the world, yeah. the world at the time and you had a shook you did very yeah. very well they make sure that the girls are well-rounded in that mm-hmm. um they make sure that they still go to school and that they can still enjoy themselves they don't force them to go in I think it's like the actual like junior league mm-hmm. um because they're like we're not going to burn the kids out they're going to have a childhood mm-hmm. and then they can turn pro when they're ready Although yeah that does become a point of tension yeah because it feels like Richard is like holding them back and trying to assert control what I say all that to say is that like it's not just black parents who are like incredibly intense why do you do that and they don't have the pressure of (laughs) yeah (laughs) but I think there's like a long history of that of like white people relating to their children also as like a certain kind of like property Mm -hmm. um and so I think I think in some ways, like the relationships that Black people are having with their kids are a byproduct of the relationships white people have historically had with their kids. Yes. And then, of course, that is like being like reconstituted by anti-Blackness and by like the history of like slavery and commodity is like mm-hmm. also overriding that too. But I think I think white people are arguably like the template for that kind of like yeah. that like that kind of parental engagement. And I'm, I'm, I think it is important that those like dynamics were shown because I think in some ways it is a larger conversation, right? Because I mean, you see like shows like Dance Moms and those are mostly white women who mm-hmm. are like pushing their daughters, right? Or like toddlers and tiaras, right? Like all that kind of stuff. These are mostly white women with their daughters. And there's obviously a very gendered discourse also that fits into that dynamic. Those are not like fathers pushing their daughters. These are mothers pushing mm-hmm. their daughters into these like very like, gendered like sports and performance cultures but there's also a real high intensity and this like implication that there are high stakes because in many cases people are these children are in some ways breadwinners (laughs) which I think is a a larger conversation about like what does it mean for a child to be a breadwinner when children are like very disempowered like in terms of like even just like legally children have like very little um, recourse or rights in society so I think it is very complicated 
even if you put race aside in that context. But I think when you add race, then it just like troubles the category of the child in general. Cause it's like, well, what, what is a child? And like, do black people ever get to like fully occupy that position mm. of the child in the way that we have come to understand the child to occupy some like category of innocence? Yeah. I was recently watching an uncensored episode of Raven Simone and she was talking about how her relationship with her parents and how that was impacted mm-hmm. by the fact that like she was making the money and what's that like when you know that you're the breadwinner but at the same time you have to answer to your parents and what that does mm-hmm. to your relationship and I think interesting part about Raven Simone is that I think her parents definitely shielded her well from the perils of being a, a child star that's like on mm-hmm. the loose but Raven Simone still talks about like the trauma that she had because yeah because the fact that she was a child star and you can mm-hmm. tell that she resents her parents mm-hmm. for putting her in show business at such an early age because I think yeah she's been in it since she was three and so I think this is a question that you asked earlier but you, we can make a film like King Richard because Venus and Serena were and are successful but what happens with all of the failed Venus and Serena projects of mm-hmm. <laughs> Black parents pushing yeah. their children to the limits? Yeah. And either they don't become successful at all, or they're like a Michael Jackson or a Tiger Woods where they, mm-hmm. have these, they crash and burn. They crash and burn because yeah. they may be extremely successful, but in t- their interior lives are like extremely fragile and falling apart. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. I mean, I think even in that, I think I saw the interview you were talking about with, with Raven where like, mm. she talks about like being overworked and how like, in some yes. ways, like it became worse for her because of how talented she was, yeah. right? like because of like how much, how much she did have in her. Right. But like, what does it mean to just be kind of like exhausted? Like your mm. resource is just completely exhausted and like to get stuck in that rat race. Cause like she talks about how, like at a certain point, like you're supposed to take a break right like in your career and like come back and like renewed in a certain type of way like as yeah. an artist as someone committed to her craft and she talks about how like she feel like for a while she was just like felt like everyone was looking at her like why are you still on tv like what mm. like what are you doing here right like that people felt like she should have like moved on and been doing other things and she just kind of kept doing the same thing and like never really took time to like do her own thing and i'm, I'm happy for i mean obviously like you know she has her white queen now. <laughs> she just got married. <laughs> but like, I am glad that she is like, you know, taking some time for herself and like, and like having a personal life. And I, I don't know, I think it's interesting because I think that like when, when those people start to like glitch, right, when they start to have problems, right, like when you get like a Tiger Woods who like has these very big blowups, these very big scandals, right, like it's easy to like laugh at those people or like pity them or like even when you get someone like maybe has like smaller scale scandals like you know like Raven Simone being like I'm translucent right like I'm not even black or whatever right like Uh, from every continent in Africa yeah like her whole kind of like that whole goofy like time where like she was pretending like she didn't know she was black right like I think it's easy for us to like laugh at those narratives but I think that like in some ways if you put them in context in terms of like the spaces that people occupied and the kinds of like narratives they were internalizing I don't know if it's as funny <laughs> anymore, mm. right? You know what I mean? Because I think I think there's an extent to which Raven was probably in many spaces the only Black girl. Oh, absolutely. Around, right? And I think, that, especially, I mean, once she gets to Disney Channel, right? Like, that's a Raven, right? I mean, because even eventually the woman who plays her mom fades out, right? So, like, she really is just by herself. 
and obviously Raven is huge like Raven's like the Beyonce of Disney Channel like she had a huge moment but I think there's an extent to which she was extremely isolated and was I think in some ways supposed to represent black girls around the world (laughs) right like she's like huge yeah and she's also like um, plus size as well yeah Um, yeah and in that document she talks about struggling with her weight because Mm -hmm. you know the pressure to always be skinny and she's a pioneer because like she was the only plus size girl who was not the butt of a joke that we got to see and obviously I mean fat phobia is like heavily racialized so Mm -hmm. like there's obviously ways in which that plays in even taking into account the fact that like she would benefit from colorism as a lighter skinned black woman like that's Mm -hmm. obviously still gonna play out especially in the early 2000s which like society is still fat phobic but the early 2000s felt like no, it was especially like, yeah. it was just extremely intense and like very out there in terms of tv film like there was this constant obsession i think especially on the part of like white people concerned with white femininity were very mm-hmm. concerned with like thinness and like a very over the top way that i think mm-hmm. obviously was going to spill over into children's media as well and i think raven likely experienced a lot and internalized a lot during that time. So like when we get to like Raven being in an Oprah interview or whatever, and like saying that she's all the colors of the rainbow, <laughs> right? Like, I think that feels like a part of a larger conversation in terms of like, just like what connection she is able to even form around her identity yeah. in a certain way. I mean, cause her identity would have been doing so much for everyone else, but I'm not sure what her relationship to herself would have been at that point. And I mean, Tiger Woods also had periods where his whole like cobblinasian thing that he was oh, doing, yeah. like you know what I mean like he had he also had really like weird moments and I think it's interesting because if you watch like the Tiger Woods documentary like the docuseries like it's very clear early in his career that there was an understanding of him as black like obviously it's well known that his mother is Asian and that he is Asian but I think his blackness was like very widely understood right mm-hmm. and like in like weighed heavily in terms of people's sense of like what he could do for the sport of golf right? Yeah. And he talks about, in interviews, talk about him being the Michael Jordan of golf. And he understood himself to be Black playing that sport. I think over time, obviously, as like the politics of post-racialism shift, right? There, the multiracial like discourse becomes like more prominent, right? And like he starts playing into that in weird ways. But I think early on, there was no real conflict between understanding him to be a Black athlete and understanding him to be Asian right like I don't there wasn't there wasn't the same kind of discourse of like oh is he black or is he mixed like it was understood that he was both of those things Mm. and I think over time the discourse gets weird (laughs) um (laughs) but I also think that he was going through a lot and I think both of his parents if you watch the series I think it gives a lot of context I think for why he would snap in the ways that he has Mm. yeah Um, and that's the HBO series on um yeah I think it's literally called Tiger yeah Okay, so thinking about children and children's relationships to their parents, um, we would like to close with a quote from Bell Hooks. Mm-hmm. Um, Jordan, would you like to take it away? Yes. So um, honoring Bell Hooks and her love and respect for children, we are going to close with a quote from All About Love in which Bell Hooks says, quote, when we love children, we acknowledge by our every action that they are not property, that they have rights, that we respect and uphold their rights. We'll leave you to think about whether that is reflected in Black parents, not necessarily even like raising 
black prodigies, black child prodigies, but very much creating and molding mm-hmm. um, child prodigies and whether that quote is part of their parenting. Yes, yes. So. All right, y'all. <laughs> Do you want to? <laughs> I guess I didn't know. <laughs> we can just end there. <laughs> the girls who get it, get it. Thank you for listening. To continue this conversation, check out our reading list for this episode on our link tree, or you'll find all the resources we read to shape this discussion. If you enjoy our work, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear your thoughts and questions about this episode. Please tweet us or DM us on Instagram and Twitter at at LoseYourSister. You can also send us an email at LoseYourSister at gmail.com. We hope you'll be back for our next episode next month. Bye. Bye.